let's pray. We're going to dive right in, and I hope we're all blessed this morning. Father, we, we pray to You together and ask that You would speak to us. And it's no small request, but You are a God who loves to speak. We need ears to hear, and not just ears, but minds to understand, and not just a mind, but a heart that actually wants to receive it. And the heart is not so easily changed. And so we pray that You would do that in us, no matter how new or old we may be to this room, or new or old we may be to You. We pray that You would open our hearts to receive what You have today. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Brothers, it is Thanksgiving week, so it behooves me to ask the question, what are you thankful for? It sounds uh, almost trite to say, anytime you do something regularly, it can lose its meaning, Thanksgiving being one of those, and the often forgotten overlooked holiday. If I asked how many people have their Christmas lights glowing right now in their homes, or in their apartments, wherever you may live. Uh, and we need to stop and give thanks, because we're often a thankless people. But when we give thanks, and I say, what are you, what are you thankful for? There could be a litany of things that go through your mind. I, I think it's also important that we say, why, did it, why am I thankful for the thing for which I'm saying? Let me say it differently. What are you thankful for? And what does that say? What does that say about you? What does that say about the thing that comes to mind first instinctually? And the reason I think that's a really important question to ask is this. If I ask a different question and said, are you at peace today? You wouldn't realize it at first, but it's actually directly tied to giving thanks. An example, if I said, God, I thank you for my family. If anything tampered with or threatened my family, guess what is the first thing to go? Peace. Why? Because the thing for which I am instinctually first and foremost giving thanks for is now threatened. And because it's threatened, peace goes out the window. And now all my prayers become focused on what? My family. Right? And it's not here or there to say, you know, Brent, that makes you an awful person that you would think of your family first. What a terrible thing. There's got to be something greater than your own family. That's not really the point. The point is, it makes me yearn inside for a peace that can't be removed. And if there is such a thing, that should instinctually be the thing that I first and foremost give thanks for, right? I've kind of already given you the end at the beginning. There is such a peace. There is such a peace. I just don't think we are well acquainted with it. I don't think we truly experience it enough. I don't think we let our minds get consumed with it like we'll let it get consumed with everything else. And because that's the case, I think what ends up happening is we generally are men who lack true peace. We are restless beings inside of our souls. 
Unless, of course, everything's going all right. So let me speak plainly. The content of our thanks often reveals the source of our peace. And that's true because thanksgiving and peace go hand in hand. You know, we really just need to look at the first thanksgiving to see this. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a summary of it. Some of you might be familiar. Uh, the major similarity between our first Jamestown settlers and our first Plymouth settlers was great human suffering. They arrived near Plymouth November of 1620, and it was too late to plant crops. Anybody from the Northeast? You're going to understand better than anyone else what a harsh winter is. And so they arrive in November and it was too late to plant crops and many settlers died of scurvy and malnutrition because they couldn't plant crops. Over three-fourths of the women died in the first winter. And of the 102 original Mayflower passengers, only 44 survived. Settling in the New World might have been a failure except for one thing. Do you know what it was? It was the kindness and help of the American Indians who helped save the settlers from a frosty death and taught them what plants could be planted and when and how to plant them. And particularly, the help of one certain chief named Massasoit, who was the head of the Wampanoag tribe. And so after the first governor was elected under the Mayflower Compact, he shortly perished from the harsh winter. And then William Bradford was elected governor for the next 30 years. And Chief Massasoit signed a treaty of peace with Bradford and the Pilgrims in the summer of 1621, and it was one that was never broken. After that first harvest, following that harsh winter, and before the winter of 1621, Chief Massasoit and about 90 other Wampanoags, outnumbering the Pilgrims at this time, they joined Bradford and the Pilgrims for a feast. At that time, it was called the Harvest Festival. It was different from our traditional Thanksgiving feast because the primary focus of the Harvest Festival was relational peace and mutual prosperity, though it did involve a lot of food. But the food was a symbol of their relational peace. The participants celebrated for several days together and they dined on venison, on goose, on duck, on turkey, of course, on fish, and on cornbread, of course. In the years to follow, they would gather every year after harvest and before winter for this feast of thanks for peace. Isn't that interesting? I find it very interesting, and this is really why. The first Thanksgiving was really a celebration of relational peace amidst highly unpeaceful life conditions. I mean, there was another looming winter, wasn't there? There was also the potential of food shortage coming up. There was the threat of further disease, and obviously, if that's the case, death. Were they thankful for the food that was provided? Of course they were thankful for the food that was provided. Were they thankful for their health and their life? Of course they were. They had lost over half their people. 
But above all these things, what fascinates me the most is that this celebration of Harvest Festival, which becomes a celebration of Thanksgiving, the primary thing for which they were thankful was relational peace between the tribe and between the pilgrims. And this really isn't too foreign to us. Holidays have a way of highlighting broken relationships, don't they? You can eat all the turkey you want, and we will. You can feast and football all day long, but there's not true rest if there are broken relationships around the table. There's not true rest when there are the meandering thoughts of someone whom we know we should love or be loved by, whom we do not feel love towards or feel loved by. And if we're honest, brothers, we would say we would give pretty much anything on that feast just to have that, wouldn't we? Well, the first Thanksgiving shows us that's not too uncommon. There's something wonderful and there's something right when we are in right relationship with one another. And that's because peace and thanksgiving, they tend to go hand in hand, but we tend to not have peace. We don't have it with each other. We don't even have it within ourselves. And ultimately, we often don't have it with God. Many are at unrest with God. Maybe some of you. Uh, Some think of God, and I, I think there's a sense of dismissive indifference. Let me put that in Wichita Fallsian language. I don't care. But that's not peace. That's not really peace. To treat God or to think of Him with dismissive indifference doesn't actually bring peace. It might be the absence of felt conflict, but that does not equal peace. Some think of God and they have a guilty conscience. The first immediate internal response to a thought of Him is failure, insecurity, and guilt. A conscience that's so hypersensitive to the reality of what's not right within me that to think of God is to immediately feel that flare up. That's not peace. Some think of God and they have enmity or even disdain. They hate Him. They're angry at Him. He's wronged them in such a way or for such a time or for too long. They want nothing to do with Him. But that's not. That's not peace. That's the funny thing about anger. It tends to grow. And it's the odd thing about bitterness and resentment. It's like drinking poison while wishing the other person would die. It's not peace. And some think of God and they have cynicism or even suspicion. It's not a doubt that leads to curiosity, but a doubt that leads to distance. And while I would encourage everyone in this room to to have concerted hard thoughts about God and even questions that might remain unanswered because they involve divine mystery. There's an unrest 
when doubt goes unchecked and when the question goes unsought after. It's not peace. And you know what's strange, brothers, is that at the root of much of this is thanklessness. And that sounds so strange. If you're dismissive of God or you want nothing to do with Him, why in the world would you ever think about giving Him thanks? Right? But this is part and parcel of Paul's argument in Romans 1, isn't it? He says those who suppress the truth and deny God's existence are those, and this is a quote from him, who refuse to recognize Him as God or what? Or give Him thanks. What a strange thing to say, Paul. That those who suppress the truth of God's existence are those who don't give Him thanks. But thanks and peace go hand in hand. They always have and they always will. The inability to give thanks often leads to an utter lack of security and peace with God. No thanksgiving to Him, you likely have no peace. And if you have no peace, when last did you give thanks to God? Someone might say, I don't want to thank Him. And I would say, I understand. But you will have no lasting peace. Because they go hand in hand and the relationship with God is broken. And so a a looming question that's an echo from the Garden of Eden from the very beginning is, how will man return to right relationship with God? Can there be peace between God and and man. And you know why, brothers? It's because sin separates. Okay? If we go back to the narrative that takes place in Genesis 3, in the very beginning, sin certainly opens the door to destruction, to disease, to decay, even to death. But at its core, what sin wants to do more than anything else is to create relational dissonance. To break relationships. And so you see sin separating before it even has started really destroying. Just think about it for a minute. There's a separation between man and woman. They hide from each other. And then we're told in the curse that man wants to rule over woman and woman wants to rule over man. There's a separation that takes place. But that's not it. It's also between man and man. The first story told outside the walls of the Garden of Eden is a story of two brothers, one who kills the other. Because that's what sin does. It separates. Its aim is relational destruction. But that's not all, is it? It's also between man and creation. Part of the curse is, guess what, man? You and creation will have a severed relationship and your work is going to be hard and the ground will no longer with ease produce any fruit for you. You're going to toil by the sweat of your brow. And isn't that true, brothers? Work's hard. There's periods of easy by the common grace of God. But it's hard. It's difficult. Or let me say it this way. Work often is not as it should be. But that's not it. Sin also separates man in himself. I learned this week, I was reading 
the Anxiety and Depression Association of America's website. I didn't know this. But their newest statistic is that 18.1% of Americans over age 18 suffer from an anxiety disorder. That's not anxiety. An anxiety disorder. That's over 40 million American adults. And what's more is when they did their statistical surveys with ages 13 to 18, it's 25.1% of teenagers currently suffering from an anxiety disorder. Brothers, there's no peace within that one in five Americans suffer from an anxiety disorder. But that's not all sin did, is it? Ultimately, what sin did was created a separation, a chasm between man and God. Man tries to hide from God, and God's first question to man, where are you? Because you see, brothers, though there is a separation that took place, the first question from the mouth of God to man is saying, I'm coming after you. There is no peace between us. Where are you, Adam? He's omniscient. There's nothing that can be hidden from his sight. He sees into the hidden heart of man. And he says, where are you? He's signifying that he's about to make a way. So how will he make a way? How will man return to right relationship with God? That is the echoing question of Eden. It's also the echoing question of every anxiety that we feel inside. And the answer is, can there be peace? Yes, but it's going to require the life-giving feast of thanksgiving. And so we need to turn our eyes to the first thanksgiving. The first thanksgiving in Scripture. You'll see it there on your handout. It's Leviticus chapter 7. The way for the people to be reconciliated, to be reconciled, to be reunited, to be at peace with God was through an offering of thanksgiving. Read with me in verse 11. And this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings that one may offer to the Lord. If he offers it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with a thanksgiving sacrifice unleavened loaves mixed with oil, unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and loaves of fine flour well mixed with oil. With the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving, he shall bring his offering with loaves of leavened bread. And from it, he shall offer one loaf from each offering as a gift to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who throws the blood of the peace offerings. And the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it until the morning. Now, I don't often teach from Leviticus. This was a book of the Bible that I would go to when I didn't want to listen to the sermon that was being given on a Sunday morning because I was fascinated with some of the stuff that was in there. But what we find here in this very interesting um, litany of verses that takes place beginning in 6 is the various offerings that are going to be given for the sake of the people in their relationship with God. And this is the passage that speaks of peace offerings, but it ties it directly with what? A 
sacrifice of thanksgiving. Because peace and thanksgiving go hand in hand. And there are really three overarching themes of this peace offering of thanksgiving. Okay? First, the thanksgiving offering was a two-part offering. In the first three verses, you see there was the blood of the animal sacrificed, and there was the bread offered as a sign of peace and thanksgiving. In other words, there was blood and there was bread. Okay, but you also see that this Thanksgiving offering, it was an abundant offering, right? Like our meal on Thursday. Not only was the life of the animal offered to secure peace with God, but along with the animal, there was unleavened bread. And then along with the unleavened bread, there was wafers. And then along with the wafers, there was fine flour. What difference does it make if the animal's been sacrificed? Well, it's signifying that this peace offering is an abundance of peace. It's not just two parts with the blood and the bread. It's also signified with abundance. Let me put it differently. A peace that surpasses all understanding. But then lastly, this Thanksgiving offering, it was a finished offering. Sometimes not like our meal on Thursday. You'll probably eat Thanksgiving leftovers well, right up until Christmas Eve if you're like my family. But not this Thanksgiving offering. It was a finished offering. That last verse, the offering for Thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of His offering. He shall not leave any of it until the morning. Why? Well, if peace is perfected, and complete, so shall the offering be. There can be nothing left. Peace is secured. This is a certainty of peace. It's, let me say it this way, a completed work. And so this Thanksgiving offering involves blood and body. Bread. This Thanksgiving offering is abundant. And it's complete. The goal was restored peace. The offering was one of thanksgiving to God. And the content of the feast are these things. And then, if you think, brothers, and you're familiar with the Bible, you would say, if that is the first thanksgiving, is there a second? And there is, and it's perpetual. As a matter of fact, we're told to celebrate this thanksgiving feast until the Lord Jesus comes again. Okay? And this second thanksgiving feast, it's in the New Testament. And it too signifies the way to restore peace with God. It too involves two parts. Blood and bread. It too signifies abundance. That there's an unending something about it. But it too is a sign of completion. Of finished work. That there's something about it that is certainly ended. Because peace and thanksgiving can only truly be found this way in Luke chapter 22. And Jesus took a cup and when He had given thanks, He said, take this. Divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And He took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it 
And He gave it to them saying, This is My body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. And likewise, He took the cup after giving thanks. When they had eaten, He said, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in My blood. Of course. The second perennial Thanksgiving feast. The Eucharist. Now, in our circles, we call this communion. But there are other circles where this has been referred to as the Eucharist for a very long time. And the name itself is very appropriate. Because the word Eucharist comes from the Greek verb eucharisteo. And you know what it means? To give thanks. Communion is a thanksgiving feast. It has two parts. Blood, symbolized in wine, and bread. The significance of it is abundant and unending. And yet at the same time, it's completed and finished. And so whenever we, we see this, we have to ask, what was Christ doing in that blessed Thanksgiving meal? It was on the eve of His harshest winter, wasn't it? I mean, pause. He's celebrating a feast hours before the worst moments of His human life. And He's speaking of His body and His blood it's that life-giving offering, and it's because He is. He is the offering. Not the blood of goats or calves, oxen or sheep. He is the peace offering. Between what parties? Well, ultimately, man and God. What sin had separated, this peace offering of Christ, He's bringing back together. And that's why the Apostle Paul says things like this in Colossians and Ephesians. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. God and man being reconciliated by the God-man. Why did He have to be both? Because He was reuniting both parties. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile to Himself everything, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you, brothers who once were alienated from God and hostile in mind towards Him, having no peace, even doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. And then in Ephesians, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You once who were separated have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
For He Himself is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Don't you see it? Jesus Christ is reconciling in Himself as the peace offering not only man and God, but man and man. And not only man and man, but man and woman and man and creation. All things abundantly and completely reconciled in Him. Are you thankful for Him? Instinctually, first and foremost, does thanks for Him roll off your tongue? He can never be removed. The one thing for which we can give thanks that could never be taken from us And this is what makes the Christian the strangest of creatures. Because amidst harsh winters and all the brokenness that sin has created, be it disease of you or a loved one, be it work that's so hard you don't know how you can bear up underneath it, Whatever circumstantial employment sin might have found to try and create destruction in your life, it's neither dismissiveness nor delusion in a Christian to say those things matter very little to me. Because the Christian has a peace that surpasses all understanding. That peace is guarded in your heart and mind in Christ Jesus who gave His body and blood for you so that you might have not just peace with God, but peace with man. And not just peace with man, but peace within. And every time we feed on Him by faith, we're reminded of that peace. And you know what? It darn well better well up in us some kind of thanksgiving. Eucharist. Celebration. Because first and foremost, we want relational peace. Brothers, do you have that this morning? St. Augustine would tell you that your heart will remain restless until you find your rest in Him. Often in our church, before we greet one another, we say something like this, and it's how I want to close today. There's a minister standing up front. If you're not from our church, the ministers wear black robes. If you want to know why, I'll tell you the significance of that back in the back corner. But they'll stand up front, and it's almost lost in the order of worship. It's almost lost in the frenzy of activity that's taking place. But the minister will stand up, and it's the one thing as a minister that we say every week that we always know to say and don't have to read from our bulletin. 
And it might be one of the more powerful things we say every Sunday. The peace of the Lord be with you always. And then the congregation says, and also with you. My desire is that you would know that peace. Not from delusion or dismissiveness, but because by faith your heart is secured in something that can never be removed. Let me pray. Father, I pray for my brothers and I pray for myself that you would help us to give thanks in all circumstances because that is the will of God in Christ Jesus for us. And what that means, Father, is that we are prone to anchor ourselves to insecure things. We are prone to exacerbate our separation from You rather than to find in Christ Jesus a peace with You. And so I don't know where my brothers stand or sit around their tables, but my prayer is that You would help them to see where they are with You. Where they are in terms of their own thanksgiving. And I give You great thanks for the Lord Jesus who has made a way for us not only to be one with You, but to be reunited and reconciled to everything. So if there are broken relationships, vertical or horizontal, would You heal them this week? I pray in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.